Well, good morning. It's good to have you here, whether in the room or watching us online. If you've got a Bible, I want you to go ahead and pull it out. I'm going to ask you to go to two places, which is a little bit different than normal. The first one is Esther chapter 8. That's where we are in the book of Esther as we continue to make our way through uh, this section of the Old Testament. We'll spend this week and then two more weeks in the book of Esther and then will be done. So Esther 8, we'll look at the whole chapter, 1 through 17. And then also if you could put like a, a bookmark or just kind of stuff your finger in or the little ribbon on your Bible in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to end up looking at both of those alongside uh, one another. And so you'll want to be able to flip back and forth between those two. Um, as you get yourself situated, a couple of weeks ago, we started off with a poem from J.R.R. Tolkien, and um, it was, you know, this explanation, is perfect picture of idolatry and what it looks like to just essentially chase something and give your life to it and ultimately have your life ruined by that thing. I want us to revisit Tolkien, but in a different spot. He was uh, a prolific letter writer throughout his uh, entire life, and you can actually find places where you can get kind of like anthologies, if you will, of all those letters compiled together, and you can see a lot of the correspondence that he wrote with various people. Well, in one of those letters uh, to his son, he invented his own word, which I didn't even know was like something you could do. Uh, But apparently, if you're really smart, you can just smash some letters together and assign it a definition. And so he uh, invented the word eucatastrophe, and this is the way he explains what that means. He writes to his son, I coined the word eucatastrophe, the sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with a joy that brings tears. If you've ever been watching a movie and you get to the end and you cry happy tears, that's because there was a moment of what Tolkien would call eucatastrophe. So let me give... An example, if you have ever seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness with Will Smith, if you haven't seen the movie Pursuit of Happiness, I'm going to ruin the ending, but it's been out for like 12 years. So that's on you, not on me. Okay. In the movie, Will Smith plays a man named Chris Gardner. It's a true story of Chris Gardner's life. And so he and his son get evicted from their apartment. And Chris Gardner is in the middle of trying to study to become a broker at a large financial institution. And he gets this internship. The internship doesn't pay. And during the internship, he's supposed to be studying for this big test. And so he and his son have nowhere to live. And the movie follows them during this period of time while Chris Gardner's trying to put together some other ways to gain some income and care for his son. But they spend one night sleeping like on a subway train. They spend another night sleeping in the public restroom of like a subway station. And it just paints this picture of how hard and difficult their life is. Well, the very last like four minutes of the movie, uh, Will Smith goes to his internship he, every day, one of the things you see him do is like he presses his suit. He's got one suit. He's trying to keep it looking nice so he can go to this internship because out of all these interns, one person's going to get a job. So it's his last day there. He's sitting at his desk and he gets called into this boardroom. They're calling in one intern at a time and they're either saying, hey, thanks for being here. Uh, This was your last day. Goodbye. Or they're going to tell one person that they got a job. So Will Smith walks in and 
kind of makes small talk with these three high up officials who are high up representatives of this organization. And they make a joke about Chris Gardner. He's wearing like a, a nice shirt. And he says, well, I thought I should dress nice for my last day. And the person in charge says, why don't you wear that tomorrow for your first day? And Will Smith starts to cry there and they kind of shake hands and everything. And he walks back to his desk, but he doesn't have it within him to like sit down and work. So he just collects some stuff and he walks outside and it's just a busy, normal day on like a city street. And Will Smith is in the middle of this massive crowd of people just walking and he's like clapping to himself and he's got his arms up above his head and he runs to where his son is at daycare. And he like scoops him up in this big hug, telling his son that he got the job and that they're not going to, you know, they're going to be able to find a place to live and everything. And it's this incredibly powerful sudden happy turn that J.R.R. Tolkien would call a U catastrophe. And I was watching the last, you can just YouTube the last four minutes of that. And even without the whole rest of the movie, I'm sitting in my office on Thursday, like weeping. Because it's just such a joyous moment. That is a U catastrophe, says Tolkien. Where we are in Esther for a Jewish individual living at the time, or for a Jewish individual reading the book of Esther. Esther 8 is a, a moment of catastrophe. The book of Esther actually lays out the reason for a specific festival that's celebrated within the Jewish calendar. The festival is called Purim, P-U-R-I-M. And the celebration of Purim is the Jewish people celebrating when God saved them in Persia. And this moment here in Esther chapter 8 is the big moment where the Jewish people find out they can live. They can be rescued rather than come to ruin. This morning, we're going to talk about joy. Sudden, happy turn in a story that pierces you with a joy that brings tears. More specifically, we're going to talk, to, talk about where joy in a Christian's life comes from. And So here's the big takeaway this morning. The key to Christian joy is its source. We're going to read our way through Esther chapter 8. We'll do eight verses and kind of pause and just draw some things out. Then we'll read the rest, 9 through 17, and draw some more out of the story. So if you've got your Bible open, go ahead and look down. Follow along with me. Esther chapter 8, starting in verse 1. That same day, King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Now, that same day is the day that Haman was hung on the gallows. So, we're, at, we're on the same day where chapter 7 ended. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again, and she fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot to, he devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther. She got up and stood before the king. She said, if it pleases the king and I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen and to Mordecai the Jew, look, I have given you Haman's or I've given Haman's estate to Esther, and he was hanged on the gallows because he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews, and seal it with the royal signet ring. 
a document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. So on the same day as where chapter 7 leaves off, where Haman is hung on the gallows, some time has obviously passed. We know that because in chapter 7, Esther had said nothing about her relationship to Mordecai, so the king doesn't know that she's Jewish and that those are the people that need to be saved. By the time eight, chapter 8 picks up, some conversation has obviously happened because we're told that Esther has revealed her relationship to Mordecai, thus the fact that she is Jewish and that it's the Jewish people that need to be saved. And at this point, Esther's in you know, the whole family unit here, Mordecai and Esther, are being rewarded or awarded in huge ways. Mordecai gets the promotion that he should have gotten a long time ago. He becomes this kind of second in the kingdom and gets the king's signet ring. Haman's estate is given to Esther and she puts Mordecai over the top of it. Uh, Mordecai has been eliminated. That's a big piece of the story. And so the king is a little confused as to why Esther would now be falling down at his feet begging for something more. I, what, what more do you want? I eliminated the guy who was the source of your trouble that might have destroyed you. I gave you his, I gave your, you know, your relative his role. You've got his estate. Like, what more do you want? And look at the way Esther positions it. Verses five and six. If it pleases the king and I have found favor before him, if the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite wrote, the Agagite wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? Repetition is important in scripture. And four times, Esther makes reference to herself. Why? Look, what we know about King Ahasuerus up to this point, he's not super concerned about whether or not a group of people are going to be killed. Not really something that would bother him. He's a brutal, brutal ruler, as were the kings of Persia in general. And so Esther goes in, she knows it's not to her advantage to plead on behalf of a group of people about to be destroyed. Instead, she pleads on behalf of who? Herself. Every time in the story that the king, or Esther finds favor in the king's eyes, something good happens for Esther. She becomes queen. She is able to stand up and make her request. So she goes in and she says, if you find me pleasing, if I find favor in your eyes, save my people. How could I bear to see their destruction? How could I bear to see their ruin? And so the king acts not on behalf of the Jewish people, but on behalf of Esther. That's important. The king doesn't necessarily care, and he can't revoke a law. So he's in a little bit of, of a hard spot. So he gives, you know, the signet ring to Haman, and he says, just write whatever you want. We can't undo the old law, but you write your thing and stamp it with my signet ring, and then we'll move on. And so pick up in verse nine. On the 23rd day of the third month, that is the month of Sivan, the royal scribes were summoned 
Everything was written exactly as Mordecai commanded for the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, and the officials of the 127 provinces from India to Kush. The edict was written for each province in its own script, for each ethnic group in its own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in King Ahasuerus' name and sealed the edicts with the royal signet ring. He sent the documents by mounted couriers who rode fast horses bred in the royal stables. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so the Jews could be ready to avenge themselves against their enemies on that day. The couriers rode out in haste on their royal horses at the king's urgent command. The law was also issued in the fortress of Susa. Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great crown and a royal Uh, and a purple robe of fine linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced, and the Jews celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday, and many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. Remember, from the king's sleepless night in in Esther chapter 6, verse 1, The story's been undoing itself. So the language used in Esther 8 after Mordecai's edict is very similar to the language that was used in Esther 4 during Haman's edict. Let's just look at it really briefly. Go back and look at Esther 3 verse 13. This is Haman's edict. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. The edict from Mordecai. The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take their possessions as spoils of war. This would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. It's the same exact verbiage. Can't undo what the king has already said. A law in Persia is final. So instead, Mordecai says, all the Jewish people can defend themselves. Any group that assembles and tries to attack them, the Jewish people can fight back and defend themselves, which leads you to ask the obvious question, were they just going to lay down and let themselves be killed before? I'm not 100% sure how that was going to work. But now they have the ability to fight back. Look at the outcome. Look at verses 15 and 16 here in chapter 8. Mordecai went from the king's presence, clothed in royal purple and white, with a, gold, a great gold crown and a purple robe of linen. The city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews celebrated with gladness and joy and honor. Every province and every city where the king's command and his law reached joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. There was a celebration and a holiday. Flip back to Esther chapter 4 verse 3. After Haman's edict is given, actually start in verse 2. He went only as far as the king's gate, that's Mordecai, since the law prohibited anyone wearing sackcloth from entering the king's gate. There was great mourning among the Jewish people in every province where the king's command and edict came. They fasted, wept, and lamented, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. The story is just undoing itself. 
The same language for the edict from Haman is used by Mordecai so that they can defend themselves. The response that the Jews gave in response to Haman's edict is now reversed in response to Mordecai's. After the first edict, there was mourning, fasting, weeping, lamenting, sackcloth, and ashes. After the second one, there's rejoicing, celebration, gladness, joy, honor, a holiday. Mordecai's no longer wearing sackcloth. He's dressed in royal purple and white with a gold crown and an impressive robe. Here's the thing that's important to actually note. At the end of chapter 8, who has actually been saved? Nobody. They've just been given the opportunity to defend themselves. The king, has not, the king hasn't done anything other than allow for there to be a war that takes place on a certain day in a certain month within his kingdom. No one has actually been granted any sort of victory. And yet, the prospect of victory, the very thought that they might be rescued, produces this unbelievable joy in the Jewish people. This moment of you catastrophe is like unspeakable joy for just the opportunity to fight for their salvation. There's Esther chapter eight. I want us to think about it from like a 30,000 foot level. We did this last week. What we have in the story of Esther is a person, really, Haman, who represents people who are opposed to God, stand in opposition to who he is and what he does. And then on the other side, we have God's people, chosen by him, promises made about them that they are to be the people by which all the peoples of the earth are blessed. And those two things coming into unbelievable conflict and clashing with one another. From that same 30,000 foot view what do we have in Esther chapter eight? The Old Testament is always pointing us toward ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. But in Esther, we see God working sovereignly and providentially to save his people, a people who are doomed to destruction by the powers of a seemingly unstoppable empire. And God uses Esther, despite all of her own sin and all of her shortcomings and all of her flaws and all of her own brokenness, to stand before the king and plead on behalf of her people. The result is that God's people are saved, rescued as they fight against the opponents of God and gain victory for themselves according to the will and the plan of God. And as a result of that, the Jewish people are preserved. God's faithful to his promises to bless those who bless Abraham, to curse those who treat Abraham's line with contempt. It's a wonderful story, a picture of you catastrophe, something that seems hopeless and destined for ultimate doom, reverses and becomes a moment of celebration. The Jews literally go from sitting in sackcloth to celebrating around giant tables, all because God works sovereignly and providentially on their behalf. There's a moment of piercing joy here, but it's just a shadow of something even greater. If you've got Ephesians 1 marked in your Bible, go ahead and flip over to there. I'm gonna read starting in verse 18. Keep all this verbiage from Esther kind of trickling around in the back of your mind as I read this. This is Paul writing to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesians 1, 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, 
What is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength? He, God, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. And you, people reading in Ephesus and us today, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and were by nature children under wrath, as those others were also. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in our trespasses. You were saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens with Jesus Christ, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. Amen. Think about Esther, think about the gospel. In Jesus, God has worked sovereignly and providentially to save his people. Jesus, with all of his sinless, righteous perfection, stands before the king of kings and pleads on his people's behalf. And think about it. Esther goes into King Ahasuerus, pleads for the Jewish people. On what basis? Her, if you find me pleasing, if I gain favor in your sight, save my people. Jesus stands before a holy and a righteous God in heaven with sinful people, right, who are covered by his blood. And what does Jesus say? Because of me and my perfection and my sinlessness, save them. My blood covers them. It's not anything that we've done. So Ephesians says, this is by grace that you have been saved. Not by works, so that no man can boast. Jesus doesn't write an edict and seal it with the king's ring. Instead, he stands in our place and seals our rescue with his own blood. And he doesn't offer the possibility of victory that, hey, now because I went to the cross, all you sinful people can work for your own salvation and fight for it and battle for it and hope to overcome all the sin and brokenness so that you might save yourselves. No, he stands in our place, sealing our salvation with his blood and then gives us victory. Look at the tenses in Ephesians chapter one. God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, past tense. Even though we were dead in our trespasses, you are saved, past tense, by grace. He also raised us up with him, it's already happened, seated us with him in the heavens with Jesus Christ so that in the coming age, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. It's already done. You don't have to fight for victory. It's been given to you, all of it. Past tense, raised us up, seated with Jesus Christ. That's why in the middle of Ephesians there, there's an exclamation point. You are saved by grace, exclamation point. You don't have to earn it yourself. It's been done for you. That's the gospel. Unsurprisingly, do you know what the Greek word for gospel is? 
J.R.R. Tolkien tags this word eucatastrophe. The Greek word for gospel is euangelion. E-U. Good. Angelion. News. That's why when an angel of the Lord appears to the shepherds out in a field one night while Jesus is being born, we're told that the glory of the Lord shone around them. The shepherds were terrified, but the angel said to them, don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. And then Jesus lives, dies, and resurrects. And in his death and resurrection, we have a sudden happy moment that brings piercing joy. And it's not like Esther chapter eight, where we could ask ourselves who has been saved and the answer is no one. We ask ourselves now who has been saved and the answer is everyone that has received God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. All of God's people. The rescue is actually accomplished and it ought to produce what it produces for the Jewish people in Esther eight. Rejoicing, celebration, gladness, honor, joy. Here's the rest of the paragraph that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote to his son. I coined the word catastrophe," the sudden happy turn in a story that pierces you with a joy that brings tears. And I was there led to the view that it produces its peculiar effect because it is a sudden glimpse of truth. Your whole nature, chained in material cause and effect, the chain of death, feels a sudden relief as if a major limb out of joint had suddenly snapped back. It perceives that this is indeed how things really do work in the great world for which our nature is made. And I conclude by saying that the resurrection was the greatest catastrophe possible in the great story and produces that essential emotion, Christian joy. So the question is, what is our source of joy? Where do we draw it from? And the main point this morning is that the key to Christian joy is its source, not our circumstances, not our momentary emotional feeling, but a particular source. Let's define joy here, and then I want to give five sort of foundational statements about joy. I'm gonna give you a theology textbook definition of joy, and then I'm gonna give you like regular people words. So the theology textbook would say this, that Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word and in the world. In regular terms, this is from Rick Warren, pastor of Saddleback Church out in Southern California and the author of Purpose Driven Life. Rick Warren says this, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right and the determined choice to praise God in every situation. The quiet assurance that God is in control of all the details. The settled understanding that everything is ultimately going to be all right, and a determined sort of decision to worship and praise God in any and every situation. That is joy. And that sort of joy is unique to a Christian because that sort of joy comes from a place that only a Christian fully knows. And that source is God himself. The New Testament's like 
cornerstone text on the source or the topic of joy is the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison. Uh, He's been persecuted and mistreated. He's been abandoned there. And yet in the middle of that, he makes the following statements. I rejoice in the Lord greatly while in prison, persecuted, beaten, forgotten about, left alone. I always pray with joy. I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in abundance or need. He gives a command, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Paul knows that none of those circumstantial things are his ultimate source of joy, but instead that the Lord is, and that no matter what his circumstances are, that can't be taken from him. Paul knows it and he lives it out. Let me give five statements here about Christian joy. Number one, the longing for joy is not a sinful longing. I think oftentimes as Christians, we can kind of convince ourselves that like it's our lot in life to just deal with whatever comes our way. And when difficult circumstances arrive, we just try to like slap a smile on the top of feelings of like a gloom and sadness. And we just have to trudge our way through it because one day we'll go to heaven and then we can be joyful. That's not true. Each and every human being has a God-given longing for joy. In fact, the most repeated command in the Bible is the command to rejoice or to be joyful. It appears 11 times in the book of Deuteronomy alone. That's the book where God gives the law to his people. 11 times in that law, God says, rejoice, be joyful. It appears over 30 times elsewhere in scripture. Just look at the way God creates. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates this unbelievable container. It's incredible. Everything necessary for Adam and Eve's satisfaction is there, and everything necessary for their joy is there, the primary one being God himself. Yes, everything they need for like physical existence is present within the garden, and God is there. And he is the source of their joy. Everything that God creates is is an expression of God's glory and all of it is right at Adam and Eve's fingertips along with the creator himself. And the joy that Adam and Eve are to experience, having been created in his image, living in his presence, is an extension of the complete, perfect, and eternal joy that God has in the Trinity. For all of eternity, God has existed in a relationship where nothing is lacking, nothing is broken, everything is perfect, eternal joy, and Adam and Eve are swept into that in the garden. That's why heaven sounds so appealing to us, whether Christian or not. The idea of heaven sounds very appealing. Why? Because it's the ultimate realization of living where nothing is lacking, where nothing is broken. And as Christians, we understand in the presence of God and in perfect fellowship with God and with other human beings. And so to long for that's not sinful. In fact, to long for that now is not sinful. Not just to long for it in eternity or not just to long for it when my circumstances get better, but to long for joy right now. Whatever state you showed up to this service in or you're watching in at home, to long for joy now is not a sinful longing, which means that the second truth is also true, that to pursue joy is not a sinful pursuit. I think oftentimes, again, as Christians, we can think that if I were to just chase after the things that give me joy, I would somehow be doing something outside of God's will because obviously no one could possibly be happy. That's just not true. God hardwired you to long for joy, to live in joy, 
to enjoy the same kind of eternal and perfect joy that he has always had in the Trinity. And therefore, there's nothing sinful about pursuing that reality. In fact, it is to the glory of God that we long for and pursue and live out of that joy as he intends us to. John Piper says it this way, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. God's most glorified in us when we have satisfaction, joy in him. So to pursue that is not sinful, so long as we pursue it as God intended us to. And that is the challenge. Where we find ourselves in sin is when we seek to find that joy in places where we were never meant to find it. That's what happens to Adam and Eve in the garden. That's what humanity has been doing ever since. When you're worshiping an idol or living in sin, what are you ultimately seeking from that idol or from that sin. You're seeking a moment of happiness or comfort or satisfaction or joy. That's what you long for from that thing. And yet when we pursue that outside of God, we only ever end up feeling empty, frustrated, or hurt. That's the story of human history. It's the story of your life apart from Jesus Christ. Haman is that life's poster child chasing joy and satisfaction and meaning from something outside of God and ultimately ends in his ruin. Take Paul in Philippians, that would be like the poster child for a life of joy. You don't have to have perfect circumstances to have a deep and abiding joy. Also means this, number three, that an incorrect source of joy produces an inadequate substitute for joy. If you go to the wrong source, you end up with the wrong outcome. Picture yourself in the following scenario. You've been struggling along with no water in like a barren wasteland for days and days and you're on the verge of dehydration and death. You happen to stumble upon, thanks to your good fortune, God's providence and sovereignty, this position where you're like a water, uh, spring-fed water source here on your left and the ocean on your right. And you think to yourself, I need life. You can get life from the spring-fed source. The ocean looks the same, kind of appears to promise the same thing, but if you drink that, you'll die. There we are in our sin. God offering eternal joy and satisfaction found in him and all this other sin promising stuff that looks the same. And C.S. Lewis says, we're like children who play in the mud thinking that it's joy and happiness because they can't possibly fathom a holiday at the sea. And so we chase our sin and we think it's gonna bring us joy, but it never will because it's only available in God. You've got to go to the right source to get the right feeling. Basing your joy on an idol is inadequate. That thing will ultimately fail you. Basing your joy on your circumstances is inadequate. They will invariably change. Basing your joy on like your own ability to kind of work and save yourself is inadequate because then if you go through a period of wrestling with sin or walking in sin for a season, what do you have left? Like your, your work was gonna save you and now it's pretty apparent that it can't. You chase the wrong source, you'll get the wrong outcome. Let me just spend like a minute here. I was on Facebook on Friday. 
social media is like a pretty rugged space to find yourself in these days. I don't know if you've noticed. So I'm, I'm on Facebook on Friday and, you know, the Facebook algorithm works so that the people that you interact with the most, theirs is the stuff that you see. And so I interact with a lot of Christians on Facebook. So my feed is typically filled with stuff that Christians say. Even more specifically than that, I interact with you all a lot on Facebook. And so stuff from our congregation is the stuff that I typically see on Facebook. And I spent like six or seven minutes on Facebook and it felt like I had been absolutely beat up. Like I had been tossed in the dryer and it had been put on high and I just bounced around in there for six or seven minutes and then tried to step back out. So much anger. Like so much discontent in people right now that it's like it's just spilling over out of our fingers and our keyboards out into space so just someone will see it. The last five months, let's say, since we've been just like swimming in COVID has brought up a level of of anger and discontent within our society, but within Christians as well that highlights something. I think it highlights that a few generations here of inadequate discipleship in the church has led to Christians looking like the rest of the world, chasing joy in places that can't give it. And now here we are in the middle of COVID and most everything has either been exposed for the false promise that it is or taken away from us. All that's left is anger. No quiet assurance that ultimately everything is going to be all right. No settled confidence that God is in control of the details of our lives. No determined choice to praise God no matter what situation arises. So instead, what bubbles out of Christians is anger. I can't help but think that the rest of the world looks at that and says, you're no different than, like, this, we're just all the same, right? We've run away from the source. And an incorrect source of joy produces an inadequate substitute for joy. And at some point, that substitute gets exposed for what it is. But the inverse of this would be true. Because if the source of joy is correct, your feeling of joy is sustainable. God, our source, is never going to fail. God, our source, is never going to waver or flounder. God, our source, is never going to change. So despite all the externals, the unique thing about a Christian is that our source of joy remains unmoved, unchanged at all times. Which means this, number five, when your joy wanes, the answer is always found at the source. Replenishment is always available at the source. The gospel is a well that won't run dry. Its mercies and wonders are new every morning. Its power is more than all we could ask or imagine. Its grace is available in every season. Its victory is assured no matter how bleak the outlook appears. Its beauty is unending. Its depth is unfathomable. Its comfort is all-encompassing. Its peace surpasses all understanding. So when it feels like joy is waning, we don't turn our eyes to something else. We look back at the cross where Jesus went on our behalf in all of his sinlessness, and all of his righteousness, and died in our place, where Jesus now stands at the right hand of the Father and pleads our innocence thanks to his righteousness, not our own, and where victory has been assured 
for us. Let's finish back in Esther where we started. This series we began with a quote from a woman named Karen Jobis. She said, God is omnipotently present even where he is most conspicuously absent. Here's why I've been saying throughout this series that the mistake is to position Esther as the hero, to venerate and celebrate her. It isn't that there's nothing to learn from Esther or from any Old Testament figure. It's that Esther isn't the ultimate source of joy for the Jewish people. Remember, the key to Christian joy is its source. And so I'm going to ask a couple questions. Who's responsible for the Jewish people's rescue? That's a question. Who's responsible? Esther? God. God. Which means, who is the ultimate source of the Jewish people's joy in Esther 8? God. Interesting that it's not listed in the story. Interesting that the Jewish people don't talk about God explicitly in this portion. But also, so true to our lived human experience. When things go wrong in our lives, we often looked at God and say, how could you? And yet when things go well in our lives and stuff feels joyful, we often look at the mirror and say, I knew you could do it. Totally backwards. The key to Christian joy is its source. So when things go well in life, we ought to look at God and say, why would you? Why would you do this for me? So good, so gracious, so loving. When things go wrong in life, like Rick Warren says, we can look at God and say, I have a settled assurance, a quiet confidence, a determined choice to praise you in every situation because I know you're in control of the details and that ultimately everything is going to be all right. To seek that kind of joy anywhere other than its actual source is not only to misattribute it, but also to leave yourself open to its evaporation when your circumstances change or when the next challenge arises. But when we set our sights on God alone, seeing in him an all-satisfying, soul-pervading joy, when we pursue that joy righteously and gratefully as God-glorifying, Christ-exalting followers of Jesus, then we can have a joy that never gets put out. If you're looking for some handles today, the first one might be this. If you've not ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ and received God's grace for your salvation, ultimate joy is found there and there only. If you are walking with Jesus, maybe you've lived your life thinking that to pursue joy and to pursue happiness would be something sinful. Erase that thought from your mind. Maybe you think the pursuit of joy is something sinful. Or maybe all you know of the pursuit of joy is pursuing it outside of God. So it is sinful. For you, I would say, Check the source. Are you pursuing all of your satisfaction and all of your joy in God and in God alone or are you pursuing it from somewhere else? Because if the source is correct, the feeling is sustainable. And when your joy wanes, the answer is found at the source so that in any and every situation, we might look to the cross and say, all hail King Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. We don't... We don't typically think of the book of Psalms as a book where there are like a lot of commands. Psalms is um, mostly a book of like human experience kind of lived out in relationship with the Lord and all of its various complexities and difficulties. But there is a command given repeatedly throughout the book of Psalms and it is to rejoice 
people of Israel. Rejoice in what God has done. Rejoice in who God is and the work that he is doing on your behalf. And so we're going to sing another song. And my exhortation today would be, people of God, rejoice. Rejoice in what God has done for you in the gospel. Rejoice in what he's doing for you in your life. Rejoice that you can rest with a settled assurance that everything is ultimately going to be not just good, but everything's ultimately going to be great beyond your wildest imagination. Rejoice, people of God. We're going to sing this song, Death Was Arrested. And there's this common little line throughout it that that's when death was arrested and my life began. Not a life of just trying to slap on fake smiles and hope for eternity one day, but a life of joy founding God every day from now until eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Let's close in prayer. God, thank you. God, thank you that you have saved us in Jesus. That that is a gift of grace, exclamation point. Not something that we have to achieve on our own, not something that we have to maintain on our own, not something that we will ultimately fulfill on our own, but that Jesus has done all of those on our behalf and that we can look to the cross and find an inexhaustible fountain of joy. God, I pray that as the church, it would be joy that marks us. God, I pray that as the church, we would know the source of our joy and return to it and dwell in it all the time. And when our heart is tempted to seek that from somewhere else, Lord, would your Holy Spirit redirect us back to the cross? Would we see Jesus in our place and would our joy be reignited from its true source? And would that be evident in the way that we live, in the way that we talk, and how we interact with people? God, would the world see a joyful church and be drawn to its source? God, we pray that. In the matchless name of Jesus Christ, amen, amen. Thanks for being here with us. Thanks for joining us online. We will see you maybe Wednesday night at the drive-in movie. Otherwise, we'll see you again sometime soon. Hey, if you're here, we're gonna dis- our ushers will help dismiss. Um, so just kind of hang tight so we can take everybody out row by row.